This is a Christmas Day talk by Joel titled Christmas Mandala, recorded December 25th, 2008, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, today, of course, we're celebrating Jesus' birthday. And one of the ways that Christians all over the world celebrate Jesus' birthday is to set up a creche, a nativity scene, uh, like the one here. This actually is from Mexico. This was my mother's, and this is a very simple one, but you might afterwards want to come up and take a peek at it. They're, they're beautifully carved, earthy kind of figures. And this is the Christian equivalent of artistic expressions that happen in other cultures. For instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have mandalas, which I think most of you are familiar with. A mandala is a painting or maybe done in sand or whatever, and it is a design. Sometimes it's quite abstract. Sometimes it actually has beings depicted in it. It's usually concentric circles built around some focal center. And it's a snapshot of a teaching or some state, some experience, or something like that. And then it's used for contemplation, usually. So this creche, this nativity scene, is a kind of mandala. And this morning I want to talk about what this mandala represents, and then go through some of the elements in it. Mandalas are not just decorative, they have symbols in them, and in the Christian case, this is a celebration of the myth of the birth of the Savior. It's a snapshot at the moment of the birth of a Savior. This is an ancient and widespread myth. I know Christians like to claim it as their own, but it's not. Many traditions have birth of the Savior myths. For instance, the god Dionysus is a divine Savior. Every birth of the Savior myth, by the way, there's something a little unusual about it. Dionysius is the son of a mortal woman and Zeus, so he has a divine parent. Uh, Krishna is born to divine parents, but Krishna is put off on foster parents to raise because there's a plot against his life. Uh, Moses is born of Hebrews, but he's uh, put into the Nile by his mother because the Pharaoh is killing all the male children, and so he is found by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised as an Egyptian. So there's always something funny about their birth and the parentage when we come to the myth of the Savior. But from a mystic's point of view, whatever the details are, whatever the, the local garb is, the myth of the Savior is a story about the arrival, the entering of the possibility of enlightenment into the world. From a mystic's point of view, that's what the Savior does. The Savior brings to the world a way to attain this enlightenment. And so in that sense, all these Savior myths have this archetypal feature in common, even though they might play out uh, somewhat differently. I think at this point it's also important to say that from a mystic's point of view, at least from my point of view, myths are not superstitions. A myth is a narrative given in a symbolic language that is just as factual in its realm, which is the psycho-spiritual realm, as, say, the language of science is in its realm. So 
if we just keep that in mind when we talk about these things, when we read these myths and so forth, we don't have to interpret them as something that you could go back and video cam. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have any significance. It isn't just a story to dismiss. So, what are the elements in this Christian mandala of the nativity? They are drawn from two narratives found in two of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. So, let's go through them here. And let me just remind you of the bare elements if you've read them before. First of all, an angel appears to Mary to tell her that she is going to have a child, uh, which is rather stunning since she is a virgin. And she's going to have the child before she's married to Joseph, to whom she's betrothed. And so the angel goes to tell Joseph that this is okay, that this child is going to have a divine father, and he shouldn't be upset or think she's been fooling around or something like that. So this already gives us a clue that this is the birth of a savior myth. Jesus is going to have a divine parent. He's not just born in an ordinary way. And then Joseph takes Mary as she's pregnant now. He takes her down to Bethlehem where there's supposedly this taxation going on and they have to be registered. And historians are not quite clear how that worked. The idea in the Bibles is everybody has to go back to their native town to register to pay the tax. But whether this is actually historically true or not is questionable. In any case, it's very important that Joseph does take Mary to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus, as we'll see later. And he takes her there, and they try to check in at the local motel, and there's no rooms left, so they end up in a manger. And that's where she gives birth. So Mary's giving birth to Jesus in this manger in Bethlehem. And then, in the hills around Bethlehem, there's some shepherds, and some angels appear. First one angel, and the shepherds are terrified, and the angel says, fear not, uh, we've got good news for you. The Savior is born down in Bethlehem. And then the host of angels come, and they all start singing praises to God and to the newborn king, as we just sang about ourselves. And so the, uh, the shepherds hustle off down to Bethlehem, and sure enough, they find Jesus in the manger. And then, uh, most of this comes from Luke, by the way. And then, according to Matthew, three kings or wise men, depending on how you interpret the word magi, show up from the east. They're following a miraculous star that hangs over Bethlehem. And it's a little bit unclear about the timing here, because some people think that this actually happened two years later. But, again, see, this is what's important to understand about myths. These things don't matter so much in myths. Things get compressed for their symbolic value, for their narrative value. So we don't have to worry about all that. But traditionally, they're shown at the nativity. They show up in Bethlehem with gifts. Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which we'll talk about in a moment. So that's basically the narrative story from which the elements of the mandala are drawn. And then if we see how the mandala is organized, and this is a very simple set up. You've seen more elaborate ones where they actually have the manger and under a Christmas tree and more figures and so forth. But basically most of them are set up in this fundamental concentric circular fashion. So let's look at that. Of course at the center there's Jesus, the infant Jesus, and uh, Joseph and Mary forming a little triad there. And 
around them, in the next circle out, so to speak, are the shepherds, these are the two shepherds, and the three kings coming. And then in the background, often sort of in the shadows, are the animals, the barn animals, the <coughs> cow, a donkey, a sheep, some geese, whatever. And then often in the rafters, we see the angel, and sometimes a host of angels if it's an elaborate crash setup. We have one angel, I've elevated a little bit here. Sometimes the angels are above the whole manger. And then if this is really an elaborate setup, all this is placed under the night sky with the star of Bethlehem overhead, which I had to put the star of Bethlehem over here <laughs> I didn't have any place to put it over there, but you can use your imagination and uh, transfer the star of Bethlehem up here. So those are the elements and the circles of this mandala. So let's go through now and talk about what they mean symbolically. And keep in mind now that, again, they are specific to the Christian tradition in the terms of you know, the shepherds, the kings, and so forth. But they represent archetypal messages. And you will find the archetype in other traditions as well. So, let's start. What about the star and the angel and heavenly hosts? Why are they in the scene? And by the way, you can look at a mandala like a dream. Everything is in there for a reason. There are no accidents for some sort of symbolic reason. So we, we can just interpret it like a dream. We ask ourselves, why did the dreamer pick these images to be in your dream? Why did the spiritual consciousness of Christians pick these elements to be in the mandala of the nativity? And the star and the angels represent the spiritual dimension of the cosmos. And the message is that the birth of the Savior is not just an individual event. Enlightenment is not just an individual event. To become enlightened isn't just something that happens to you as some individual. Enlightenment is a cosmic event. It affects the whole cosmos. Now, this is part of the mysteries of enlightenment, and I've read people trying to figure out how it could be, and then people think up images like, well, consciousness is this great, vast, infinite awareness that embraces everything, and so when one individual gets enlightened, the light of consciousness shows through that individual, and in that sense, everything is illuminated, or we can look at it as a historical progression that we're all, as a race, moving towards enlightenment and so forth. That's all fine, but I also think it's important to realize that all those explanations are just that. They're conceptual explanations, and to wake up is instantly to recognize that this is a cosmic event. And one of the ways I put it, it's retroactive. Enlightenment goes from one end of time to another instantly. Everything's enlightened. Now, this idea, uh, the enlightenment is a cosmic event, shows up in other traditions. For instance, in the Jewish tradition, from a Kabbalist point of view, what the whole world is about since the fall is the restoration of the cosmos to God. Here's what Gershom Sholem, a great Kabbalist scholar, says about it. Originally, everything was conceived as one great whole, and the life of the Creator pulsated without hindrance or disguise 
and that of his creatures. Only the fall has caused God to become transcendent. In other words, God wasn't up there someplace before the fall. God was in everything. Its cosmic results have led to the loss of the original harmonious union and to the appearance of an isolated existence of things. The appearance of the Messiah is nothing but the consummation of the continuous process of restoration, the tikkun. The doctrine of the emergence of all things from God becomes its opposite, the doctrine of salvation as the return of all things to their original contact with God. So the arrival of the Messiah restores the whole cosmos to its original purity, if you like. And we find this idea in, in many, many traditions. Here's a teaching from Tulku Urgen Rinpoche from the Tibetan tradition. Awareness must return to the inner space. Rigpa, the primordial awareness, was first lost in the progressive straying into samsara. In the reverse order, it must return to primordial purity. So this is just a, another version of tikkun, the, the restoration of the world through enlightenment. Then the next ring here are the animals. Uh, the donkeys, sheep, cows, so forth. What do they represent? Well, the animals represent the opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak, of the spiritual dimension. They represent the earthly dimension, the worldly dimension, the material dimension, if you like. And so their presence here is to say that enlightenment isn't just a spiritual event. It isn't just something that affects angels and so forth. It affects, again, the whole cosmos. Down to the simplest grain of sand, up to the most magnificent star. And everything in between. So, this is a teaching, again, that goes back to very early times, shamanic times, that because an enlightened person realizes their unity with all the cosmos, they can commune with all the cosmos. Here's the uh, Lakota shaman, a Little Wound, and here's what he says about Wonkin. Wonkin is a holy person. A Wonkin man is one who is wise. It is one who knows the spirits and can tell the people what their visions mean. He can talk with the animals and with trees and with stones. He can talk with everything on earth. So, he communes with the spirits and he communes with the animals. Just the way Jesus does in this scene, communes with the spirits, the angels, and the animals. Again, this is something that we find in other traditions as well. Here's Zen master Dogen. A Buddhist practice is to practice in the same manner as the entire universe and all beings. If it is not practiced with all beings, it is not a Buddhist practice. So the Buddha communes with all beings. When the Buddha practices, the Buddha is practicing with the stars, with the trees, with the blades of grass. There are, particularly in the Zen tradition, descriptions of Zen masters teaching the grasses. In the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, it's said that mystics, some mystics, not all, inherit the ring of King Solomon. Uh, King Solomon's ring is the ring that allowed King Solomon to talk to the animals. 
So upon enlightenment, you can inherit the ring of King Solomon and talk to the animals. And perhaps one of the most famous, at least in our culture, depictions of that is St. Francis of Assisi, who is always depicted with animals and talks to wolves and preaches to the birds and so forth. So again, these are universal ideas represented by these specific symbols. Okay, then why the shepherds and the wise men? They represent one ring of this mandala. And they represent all classes of society, from kings to peasants. And so the Savior comes for all classes of society. And the reason the Savior can come for all classes of society is that everyone has this potential for enlightenment. It's not confined to one particular caste or class or uh, rich or poor or whatever. In that sense, spiritually speaking, everybody is absolutely equal. Way more equal than they are in political sense, in a social sense, and anything else. So their presence here is a symbolic of that. Here's what God tells Muhammad about this potentiality. Neither my earth nor my heavens can contain me. Yet the heart of my adorer contains me. God is in the heart. Now, this is a, just a universal image. Here's Saint Ephraim of Syria, a Christian mystic. Here within you are the riches of heaven, if you desire them. Enter within yourself and remain in your heart, for there is God. In Hindu Lali Shori, she sings... He lives in your heart. Recognize him. Don't look for him here and there, wondering where is God. So this is, a, among mystics, this is a universal teaching. Somewhere in the core of your being, there's this spark. There's this divine portal that you can look through. And there is God. There's the, the ultimate reality. Now, as a subset of this are the three gifts of the wise men, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention them, but I must say, these seem to be quite local. I have not run across this constellation of these three specific gifts anyplace else. They bring gold, and they bring frankincense, and they bring myrrh. Gold is a symbol of royalty, so in bringing gold, they're accepting Jesus as their king. And frankincense was like incense. It was burned in the temples of the day. So in bringing frankincense, they're accepting Jesus as the priest. They're intermediary with God. And myrrh, the word myrrh apparently in Arabic means bitter, and it's a kind of resin that was very bitter to the taste. And it is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death and suffering and then ultimate resurrection. And there's one other place it actually crops up in the Gospels, quite interesting, that in the Gospel of John, after Jesus is crucified, they rub his corpse with myrrh and other spices and wrap it in linen, preparing it for burial. So it actually was used in burial rites in those days. Now, the idea of the royalty of enlightenment, that enlightenment bestows a kind of spiritual royalty, is very common. The idea of frankincense representing communion with the divine and prayers and so forth is very common all over the world. And I've never seen myrrh specifically appear, but mystics will talk about certain practices as being like bitter medicine. 
it tastes bitter, but it actually is helpful. And certainly, from your own experience, most of you know, some practices can seem bitter when you actually do them. So there is that aspect. Then we come to Joseph and Mary. And why are Joseph and Mary there? Well, they're the parents. Obviously, they're there. But there's something about Joseph and there's something about Mary that's very specific to this that's very important. It's very interesting about Joseph. And I'm always puzzled over Joseph. Joseph is in this story really for one reason only. He's in this story to connect Jesus to the house of David which Joseph is supposedly uh, an heir to. He's a descendant of David. Because the Jewish prophecies were that the Messiah had to come from the house of David, and the house of David originates in Bethlehem. So Jesus has to be placed in Bethlehem and has to have some link to the house of David. And Joseph provides that. In both cases, he takes Mary and Jesus to Bethlehem. Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee, and everybody must have known that. So they had to get some way to get him down there and get born and then link him to David. Now, of course, if Joseph isn't really his father, he's not really linked to David in the sense of a descendant. So, again, this is an example of it's logically weak. And when I was a kid, I, never, I, you know, I could never get this. Well, is he his father or not? But this is the whole point about myths. It doesn't matter if it's logically weak. And the inventors of this narrative were actually quite creative. It's just like when you go see movies. If it's done well and put together well and acted and so forth, if you pick it apart, you'll see their gaps in the logic of the plot. But if it's a good movie, you don't care. If you've ever seen On the Waterfront, there's a wonderful scene in there where the head mafia guys find Marlon Brando, who's supposed to be spying on this meeting at a church. And as far as Brando knows, nothing happened. Actually, we know... Uh, one of the dock workers went and spilled his beans to the cops and so forth. But uh, they say to Brando, the head mafia guys, you know, where were you? We told you to go to that meeting. He says, nothing happened at the meeting. I said, nothing happened at the meeting. Here's 37 pages of testimony before the crime commission. And Brando says, where'd you get that? He says, he got it. Well, he got it? Well, you know, you don't know how. They don't explain how. It's just, you know, it's a, a writer's trick. You go on. It's a great movie. Who cares how he got it? I don't mean to go off too much, but it is an important thing about reading myths. If you're going to really enjoy myths, you have to look at them as dramas, stories, not as some sort of historical narrative. So, in any case, the other thing that's interesting about Joseph is, I think he shows up in the scene 12 years later when they bring uh, Jesus down to Jerusalem, probably for his bar mitzvah, and he uh, gets separated from his parents and he's discussing heavy matters with the elders of the temple and so forth, and his parents come to find him. I think maybe Joseph's in that. But then after that, Joseph disappears from the whole Jesus narrative completely. He's not needed anymore. Mary, much more important. Of course, Mary's a virgin, and that has many, many symbolic aspects to it, which I've talked about in other talks. I'm not going to go into too much this morning. It basically represents purity and non-duality. But Mary is a virgin and she had a, what do we call it, a relationship with God. She wasn't impregnated by a mortal, she was impregnated by God. So this is really key here to understanding Jesus' nature as it developed in the Christian tradition. It was not clear in the beginning, by the way, there was a lot of theological battle about his nature. But as it became known, 
Jesus is truly God and truly man through this divine parentage. And both Jesus being truly God and truly man are crucial to what Jesus represents and crucial to Jesus' message. And it's a big mistake, I think, to interpret Jesus as, well, he was just sort of, you know, some great ethical teacher and so forth. No, no, this is very important and the church is right on insisting on this. Because from a mystic's point of view, we are all truly God and truly human. And so in symbolic form, it's telling us something about ourselves that we are unaware of. And many, many Savior myths have this something about the parentage that the child, him or herself, is unaware of at the time. They have to discover their true parentage. And what the message is, is you think you are nothing more than a flesh and blood human being. And it ain't so. Your true nature is consciousness itself, as we say here. The ultimate reality. Divine. The beloved. So that's what Jesus being truly man and truly God is really all about. And again, this is something you find in all mystical traditions. In the Upanishads, said, that thou art. You are Brahman, the ultimate reality. Atman is Brahman. Here's the Zen master Wei Ning. Our very self-nature is the Buddha. And apart from this nature, there is no other Buddha. So we're looking for a Buddha out there, whatever. There's no other Buddha. And Buddha here is not the individual historical Buddha. Buddha is a Buddha nature, the ultimate reality. And Catherine of Genoa, who was a great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages, she says, the proper center of everyone is God himself. This goes back to the teaching that in your heart there is this divine uh, essence. And so, Jesus being truly God and truly man, Jesus is representing, bringing into the world a realization of this fact, which is open to everybody to realize. So, that's Joseph and Mary, their specific roles in this. And at the very center is Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. Why is Jesus here portrayed as this helpless infant? Well, again, it seems obvious. It's the night of his birth. I mean, what else are they going to portray him as? But if you look at the Jesus story, or let's put it this way, this snapshot, this mandala, and compare it to the myths of other saviors of their birth, you see there's an interesting discrepancy. Most other birth of the savior myths have the savior born with a maturity that an infant doesn't have. So, for instance, when Buddha is born, Buddha takes seven steps and pronounces, I am chief of the world, eldest am I in the world, foremost am I in the world. This is the last birth. There is now no more coming to be. So, this is a kid born talking and walking already, do you know what I mean? Uh, it said of Lao Tzu that his mother carried him for 62 years, the poor woman. And when he popped out, he already had a gray beard and long ears, which are the mark of a wise elder. So almost all these stories of the birth of the Savior, the Savior is either already grown or something very precocious about the kid. They're almost never predicted, at least I don't know of one instance where they're predicted as a hopeless infant. 
and you notice in this scene, this mandala, Jesus isn't doing a thing. And often he's talked about as he's sleeping, like we sang Silent Night, you know. Uh, he's sleeping in heavenly peace. I mean, this is a totally mysterious mind here. Now, this image is extremely important for the message because it depicts, again, directly, dramatically, a quality that's absolutely necessary for enlightenment. And that is a pure heart and mind. You don't always have to be a pure heart and mind. You know, if you weren't a saint most of your life, that's fine. At some moment, as a prelude to enlightenment, there has to be a moment of this kind of purity. And this is something Jesus himself taught when he got older and was teaching. He says, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall never enter it. And this doesn't mean that you need to be emotionally like a child or mentally like a child in the sense that you know, blah, 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 you don't know anything like that. It has to do with two qualities. One, a quality that we have to rid ourselves of. And that is this self-centered pride, a sense of self-importance, uh, scheming, looking at the world totally through this, you know, what's in it for me kind of eyes. And we have to cultivate a quality of openness, of spontaneity, of wonder, of being in the present. And that's what this childlike quality represents, spiritually speaking. And here's what Bishop Ignati, an Eastern Orthodox bishop, says about this. He who prays ceaselessly gradually loses the habit of wandering thoughts, of distraction, of being filled with vain worries. And the more deeply this training in holiness and humility enters the soul and takes root in it, the more he loses these habits of mind. Finally, he becomes like a child as he's commanded in the gospel and is made a fool for Christ's sake. That is, he loses the false reason of the world and receives from God a spiritual understanding. It's a description of enlightenment here. And he's giving you not specific practices or anything. He's giving you the qualities that we can foster through practices like unceasing prayer and so forth. Now, this image of becoming like a child is, uh, of course, very prominent in Christian mysticism, but again, it pops up in other traditions too. So, here's um, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. He was the one who was born at 62, you know, already with a gray beard. But here's what he says. I alone am inactive and reveal no signs, like a baby that has not yet learned to smile. Listlessly, as though with no home to go back to, my mind is that of a fool. How blank. And here's the Tibetan master, Long Shempa. Maintain the unfabricated intrinsic awareness like an infant child. If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from mind, you will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly the inconceivable sovereignty of enlightenment. Again, coming back to this image of becoming like a child. And here's what the Sufi poet Rumi says. O oh friend, the Sufi is the child of the moment. On the path, talk of tomorrow has no place. 
So Jesus in this mandala is a child of the moment. At this moment of birth, we're all children of our moment at the moment of birth. And somehow through the process of walking a spiritual path, we have to come back to this purity that's represented right at the center of the mandala. Really what the mandala is all about. This is the focal point. And this is what the whole story is about. Just that kind of childlike purity that we can cultivate affects the entire cosmos, ultimately. So, I hope that uh, all of you, through your practice, will find this kind of a childlike wonder and spontaneity and openness and love. And then every day will be Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. So, any uh, comments, thoughts? Yes, go ahead. Um, this is a little bit off the subject, but when you look at the world today, um, like you, we see the different religions doing their doing their thing. The Muslims, the Tibetan Buddhists, other Buddhists, the Jewish, and so on. What is the particular thing that Christianity has to contribute to that, you know, current society and mixture? What's this? What's the spiritual gift or the spiritual story or whatever that we really have to to bring forward? Well. I think Simone Weil said, what's explicit in one religion is implicit in all the others. So if you look at these traditions, you will find, yes, there's something that seems to be emphasized more here than there and so forth. I must say, in my experience reading or visiting teachers and so on, I think this is certainly true of individual teachers and perhaps statistically true, but I, you know, I always find something I think is unique about Christianity or a particular Christian mystic, and I find it over here in Buddhism. So it's much more uh, complex than just finding one particular trait and you say, well, the Buddhists contribute this, the Christians contribute that, and so forth. But I do think it's very important for us at this particular time and place to recognize that all traditions do contribute to the pot and have something to say and have sometimes a way of saying it that's unique, but saying something archetypal, universal, but is unique for you, not necessarily for everybody. We all have this experience, I think, reading teachers or listening to teachers, and we start to recognize they're saying the same thing over and over, but we go to one person, and they put it in such a way, and it clicks, something happens. It's the same thing you've heard before. And I think various traditions are like that. So even if you are a Christian, you don't have to give up being a Christian. You can get something from a Buddhist or a Hindu, or a Jew, or whatever, that, oh, it's been in my gospel all the time. Like the thing about being a child. Got to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. And then you might read Longchenpa, and Longchenpa is talking about a quality of mind within the context of a specific practice, and you suddenly get what Jesus was talking about. Do you know? So it'll illuminate your own tradition by reading other traditions. It'll throw light on your own tradition. You come back to your own tradition. I do think it's probably generally true that Christianity, for instance, Christianity and Buddhism are both very big on selfless action, what the Hindus would call karma yoga, actually, to borrow another term. 
You know, this is really such a big part of Jesus' teachings, as they come down to in the Gospel anyway. He's just over and over giving concrete examples of selfless action, cultivating love and compassion, selfless love and compassion. You know, now, if somebody asks you to walk a mile with them, go two miles. If somebody wants your shirt, give them your coat too. And making it so concrete, you can't escape it. It's, well, I think in your own tradition, they call it hard teaching sometimes. So this is, you know, I mean, this is extremely important uh, teaching for this time. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Now, the fundamental thing is, is the recognition that every tradition does bring something to the table. But maybe that, that's the thing we need to bring forward. Well, I would, yes. Help people see. Yes. As someone who identifies very strongly as um, Jewishly, I really appreciate what you do here. I had never seen the nativity that way. And it was very enlightening. And um, I want to encourage people, it's probably too late this year, but if you've never gone to the Friendly Street, I think it's on Adams and Friendly. No, you can't. There's a church, the Friendly Street Church. They do an outdoor live nativity scene uh. every year where people are frozen in vignettes all around two sides or three sides of that building, and it is stunning. For they hours. bring animals. And it's probably... They bring animals? Real animals? animals. Oh. And, um, and people just sit there for hours and hours and hours in the freezing cold, and it's silent. People are walking in silence, looking at the scene. stunning. Uh. I, it may, they may finish when Christmas comes. I, don't, uh. I assume it's not going to go beyond the day. Thank you for... Uh, yeah, well, next year. One of the other questions sure. I had when you talked sure. about Joseph being from the lineage of David, I wonder if Mary was also. Because being Jewish goes through the mother, not through the father. Although I do, when I thought about it a second time, that what tribe you belong to is passed on through your father, and the priestly class would come from the father. You'd have to ask a scholar about that. I'm not a scholar of these things. But when you look at the story from a layperson's point of view and read it with a little bit of a critical eye, the reason they go to Bethlehem is because Joseph is from the house of David uh -huh. and that's where he has to go to sign up for his taxes and he takes her there so there's no mention that she's from there and I think that if some way they could connect her they would have and maybe left Joseph out of the story completely you know but it is interesting I meant to mention this about this story I mentioned that Jesus in this mandala in this snapshot is portrayed as this completely pure infant. And in other traditions, the Savior's born with this kind of maturity beyond his physical years. But later, Jesus does show this unusual maturity, going to the temple for, I presume it's his bar mitzvah, I don't know why else they take him down there. So again, the elements pop up, and if you read these myths, you'll see the same elements pop up over and over again. Oh, by the way, Lao Tzu, the way his mother got pregnant, was a falling star passed overhead. So here's the star again. And she was, uh, had no mortal husband or partner. So you see, when you read through these great myths, these elements keep arising over and over again. I find it fascinating. Yes? I was thinking about those um, practical teachings of Jesus, where you were saying that the Christian and the Buddhist particularly put emphasis on compassion and going the second mile. I was thinking that um, coming from Jesus, there was probably a lot of Jewish influence in that. I, I think of the Jewish tradition as being 
really more faithful to that uh, precept of giving and sharing and taking care of those who don't have uh, of the Jewish tradition being stronger than well, either of the other two. You see, this is why I say it. You can find that certainly. And, you know, the two greatest commandments that everybody attributes to Jesus just right out of the Jewish tradition. You know, love the Lord thy God with all the heart and all the soul with all thy mind comes from Shema. It's part of the Shema. Yeah. And then the love your neighbor as yourself comes from another line there. So, you know, he's just picking out and selecting and saying, look, you already got it in your own tradition. Just do that and that's the whole bag. There was another very famous rabbi who uh, was asked, can you sum up the whole Jewish tradition, you know, in just one phrase? Hello. Yes. And he said, uh, don't do unto others what you don't want them to do unto you. And everything else is footnotes. So, you know, <laughs> this is essential teaching of compassion. And if you read to the Hasidic masters, in everything you do, you're supposed to have a blessing to go with it. But there's one exception. If a poor man asks you for help, you don't do a blessing. Because the poor man shouldn't have to wait for you to do your blessing to get the help. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. yeah. So it's a very, very strong trend in there. But the way Judaism has evolved, I think we tend to think of it in more ethical kinds of terms and more of you know, balancing out ethical principles and so forth. But that's almost a stereotype, you know. That's why I don't like to get into, well, which tradition brings what to me is more important than what you find is how it's put, like that little saying about you don't do a blessing in that situation. And that puts it in such a concrete way and, you know, to such a little detail kind of thing. But why should some poor man have to wait for you to do your blessing to get right with God? <laughs> yes? Uh, you mentioned how Jesus was so helpless at birth and then you talked about uh, the Buddha having this maturity right away. I'm not sure how that fits in with the, the, the story of Prince Siddhartha and the Buddha sitting under the, the, the Bodhi tree and all that. Well, I think that in general, the birth of the Savior, in most traditions, are trying to show you that their Savior already had these qualities. He's a great man. And one of the interesting things about the Christian one is the very beginning in this model it's not anything Jesus does or says that's his greatness. It's something actually very Taoistic. It's what he's not doing that's his greatness. He's just showing this is the kind of mind you need to get enlightened. Here it is. It's just depicted. So I said, again, later they do brag about Jesus, the Christians. You know, he went to the temple and at 13 he's talking to the elders and instructing them in Torah and stuff. And that's not something usually a 13-year-old boy does. And so those elements are in the Christian tradition too. But every once in a while you find a tradition has some take on a story that reveals something that you would normally overlook. And you see they're not contradictory. That's the whole point. Myths don't contradict each other. Just because the Buddha came uh, into the world you know, with this kind of maturity and Jesus comes in representing something else, it doesn't mean that these are contradictory teachings. And that's a very important thing to understand about this because this is why people, you know, go to war. Because they insist, well, well, who's right then? Is the Savior a helpless infant at birth or is the Savior like Buddha? Well, my guy, my version's right. Well, you're, you know. But if we drop that and we start looking at them as narratives, we don't argue about which, which movie is right. Is On the Waterfront right or is um, High Noon right? <laughs>
So take each one as it is and appreciate it. That's be my advice. Okay, one more, and then they because I know these most of these people are anxious to because Jesus taught that you know go eat and drink. That's what he did. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> That's right. Which, which again he got from the Jewish tradition. <laughs> You can build a case actually with Jesus. You know, we say, "Well, he's helpless infant," and so on. But he he remained helpless his whole life. Mm. And he, he even said when he was doing his ministry, "I'm just doing the things that I see God doing." That's right. He wasn't he wasn't trying to make up anything new. He was just being uh, led by this great reality that he had that he had, I don't know come to know or grew up with or whatever. No, that's the thing. He was totally surrendered to God's will. And, you know, the whole point of the crucifixion is that even unto death he surrendered to God's will. And then, again, you know, we can interpret that personally because we are all headed for a crucifixion of some sort. Are we totally surrendered to God's will? No. But on the other hand, he's also human. So he exhibits these other qualities like talking to the elders in the temple and uh, one of my favorite things is disciples are always missing the point of his teachings. There's one thing where he's talking about, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning the teachings of the Pharisees. And the disciples say, what does that mean? Do we don't have enough bread? Do we need more bread? I think they just had the miracle of the loaves. And he says, oh my God, you know. Don't you understand? He's always berating them like that. So. <laughs> But this is, again, if you look at the story, you see these are not contradictory facets. One can be totally surrendered and also can get annoyed at one's disciples or, you know, aggravated and whatnot. Okay, let's... Oh, go ahead, one more. This is small. I mean, I haven't heard that much about this just a little bit, but it's a place where sort of like the science and the spiritual kind of meet. Um, what do you know or what have you heard or what are your feelings about the Shroud of Turin? <laughs> uh, relics and, and that they can be very uh, important to people spiritually you know you, you have a piece of the real cross or something or a piece of the ark or whatever and it becomes a focal point for practice and meditation if you use it that way fabulous but this whole thing about subjecting the shroud to chemical tests to me this is a mixing myth and science and uh, they don't mix at that level something's going to suffer. Okay, then now let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Uh, and Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, and whatever other tradition you come from, happy your <laughs> winter celebration. <laughs>